0: Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Bran. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you, uh, we'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the church here. And like Aaron was saying, uh, one of the best ways to do that is in a small group. So really, like a not a high-pressure place, it's low-key, there's food. Everybody loves food, right? And it's just a great way to just build relationships and build connections with people and, and, and grow in your faith. So excited as well to begin a new series this morning and walking our way through the book of Philippians. I hope that our series as we began the year in January and February about identity in Christ was good for your hearts. And I pray as well that our little our detour last week as we took a week to kind of reframe the season of Lent in light of the gospel and, and preparing our hearts for Easter and, and just living on mission in our city in the midst of this season. I hope that was helpful as well. But I am really looking forward to just getting back to working through a book of the Bible verse by verse with you all. If you're uh, new or visiting, uh, that's kind of our MO around here. We normally just kind of pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it. And, and uh, sometimes we do more thematic series that help us to think about important ideas or concepts throughout Scripture like we did just a couple weeks ago in our Identity series. But, but by and large, we tend to just pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it. And there's a lot of reasons we do that, but chief among which is that uh, what I think and what I have to say is highly unimportant. But what God says and what He thinks—that matters, that matters more than anything. And so, one of the best ways for us to elevate God, what God thinks, what He has to say, is to just allow His Word to be the thing that shapes what we talk about and, and when we do it and how we do it. And so, uh, excited as well to to work through the Book of Philippians in that kind of a way with you. And I know for a lot of people, Philippians is a, it's a favorite. A lot of times, people you know try to list what maybe a book of the Bible might be their favorite. Philippians is often one that comes up right it's easy to see why and in contrast to letters like Corinthians or Galatians the the which are full of rebuke and correction as loving as that rebuke and correction might be uh, the book of Philippians in, in contrast is full of encouragement and and joy and affection and and it's just like very life-giving in the midst of it God only knows uh, how many misquoted Bible verses from this book are on coffee cups around the world right now like it's it's just there's there's tons of them right in all seriousness, though, the the church in in Philippi was it was the first church that had ever been planted in Europe, uh, and we read about that in Acts chapter sixteen. and And the reality is is that they were after ten years they were they were doing pretty well. They were a they were a healthy and maturing community of believers. They they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they were they were genuinely headed in the right direction, and they were an encouragement to Paul. They they loved God and they want people to know him. They were generous and sacrificial with their finances. They're not second-guessing the gospel. They're not running back, turning back to lives of sin. And on top of that, they just actually really liked Paul, and they respected him, which is more than he could say for a number of the other churches he had to write letters to. And in fact, the the reason he's writing this letter to them now is is to say thank you, because they had heard, they found out that he was actually in prison, and and so they sent one of their leaders to go check on him and to see if he had any needs and to be able to take care of him in the midst of that kind of a season. So whenever Paul thinks about them, he's encouraged, he's full of joy, he's thankful for them. And yet, even in the midst of all the reasons that Paul has to be thankful for and encouraged by this church and and where they're at spiritually, all that God's been doing in them and the ways that he's working in them, what you see throughout the letter is that Paul longs for them to continue to keep growing up in their faith. He wants them to keep growing. You see, he wants the good news of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus to keep transforming their attitudes and their attitudes and their, their actions and their perspectives. You see, they haven't arrived yet. They're, they're still in process. So is Paul, so are we. And As we study the letter, what we're gonna see is that there's, there's three kind of major themes that run their way throughout the course of the book that Paul kind of ties together in a, in a bunch of different ways as, as we'll, read the, we'll read the letter together. And there's a, these three ways are, are areas in which this community still needed the, the gospel to keep shaping them, to keep transforming their attitudes and actions and perspectives. And the, the three areas that we see throughout the letter are, are the areas of unity, humility, and joy unity humility and joy these are kind of these themes that run throughout the course of the letter and the reality was is that there weren't warring factions right there there weren't just like prideful worship services where everybody was just wanting everybody to look at them and be impressed by them like there wasn't Corinth that that's not what was going on but there was some relational strife and and division as well as some inward and kind of selfish tendencies that were just being allowed to kind of fester in this church and and Paul knew that if this church was going to have a lasting impact for the kingdom, then they, they needed to address some of that kind of stuff before it became like a, a real problem that consumed their churches As well, he, he knew that they were going to need to have the kind of joy, and be characterized by the kind of joy as a church that, that wasn't based on, that wasn't rooted in the experience of, of peace and blessing, but was the kind of joy that was rooted in the, the unshakable truths of the gospel, the kind of joy that persists even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trials. And so instead of just kind of patting them on the back and being like, great job, everyone, he absolutely does encourage them. But instead of leaving it there, we see throughout the letters that Paul urges them to keep pressing in to the often uncomfortable process of growing up spiritually. He he knows that God's not done transforming them yet. He's not done making them into the image of Jesus yet. And as we begin our study of Paul's letter to this maturing church this morning, what, what I want to show you is that, is that being characterized by the kind of unity and humility and joy that, that God calls us as his people to, that all those things are actually directly connected with growing up in our love for God and in our love for others. Love is the thing that connects all of that stuff. It's the thing that makes all of that stuff possible together. And so as we study, I can't wait to show you that this morning as we begin this letter. And so with all that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll uh, read the passage, dive into our study in Philippians. God, thanks for your word, and thanks for our time together in it this morning. We just just come humbly and just recognizing, just like uh, Paul encourages these believers to, that we still need to keep growing wherever we're at. And so, God, we want to have an attitude of not having arrived, but we want to have an attitude constantly of in asking you where it is that you want to keep shaping us, how the gospel needs to keep reorienting our attitudes and actions and perspectives. And so we need you for all of that, God. We need you to be the one that does it in us. And. God, I just ask as we study this letter over the course of the next few months, God, just pray that you would be gracious to be pointing out to our hearts where it is that you're wanting to keep shaping us where in our own lives as a church and as individuals, where it is that you, that the good news of the gospel needs to keep shaping our attitudes and actions and perspectives. And so we just want to come humbly to you, asking that you'd show that to us, but also God, just hopeful that as you do, that you'll be empowering us by the person and the work of Jesus and the good news of the gospel to actually live new lives unto you. And so cause us to be a people that keeps growing together as we study, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to just be in the first, uh, first half of chapter 1, first little part here, first 11 verses, begins this way. Paul and Timothy, Timothy's kind of Paul's protege. It's like he's, he's like his Padawan, you know, if you're into Star Wars. Timothy is like an Anakin, but doesn't go evil in the end. It's great, right? Um, anyway, so Paul and Timothy there, he says, servants of Christ Jesus to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all the overseers and deacons, that's the leaders, and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you all in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Like I said, uh, Paul has a lot to be encouraged by with these with this church. The first half of our passage this morning is all basically it's all reasons why he's encouraged and thankful for them. He tells them in verses 3 and 4 that whenever he thinks about them, whenever he prays about them, he says that he's he's full of joy. And joy like I said, it's kind of this major theme that runs throughout the course of the letter. And the word joy or rejoice it occurs more than fifteen times in the in the four short chapters in in our book and we're going to talk a lot more about joy in the coming weeks and a bunch of passages that it comes up in but for now what I just want to point out is that is that the joy that Paul has in remembering this community of believers. It must have been especially sweet because what we're going to see in the coming weeks and especially next week is what he alludes to in verse 7 and and what we're going to see next week is that he's actually writing them this letter uh, from prison. He is currently in chains, currently in jail. And I can only imagine uh, how encouraging it must be for him to think about this church. He's not worried about them. He's not just like fretting over where they're at. He's just encouraged and thankful by all the ways he sees God working in and through them. And the reason that Paul gives for in verse five for why he's so thankful when he thinks about them is, is because he says of their partnership in the gospel. You see, they, they weren't just recipients of the gospel from Paul, they were partners in the gospel with him. And we'll see as we get to chapter four that one of the ways that this, one of the things that kind of characterized this partnership of the gospel is that is that they financially supported Paul as he went around preaching and, and teaching and proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. And in a lot of ways, the whole letter that you see is really a thank you letter to them for the ways that they've been providing for his needs and ministry and the ability to keep preaching the gospel. and. And it really connects with me because I remember when Han and I first got married, we went; were on staff of the, in, in an organization called InterVarsity. And basically we were kind of missionaries to college students. And, and uh, as part of that role, we had to raise funds. We had to raise support. Kind of like a missionary going overseas, college campus. In a lot of ways, it's like a foreign country to many people, right? And believe it or not, college students are mostly broke, right? Some of you are in college and you understand that. You're like, yes, someone gets it finally, right? Um, but I remember that... When we, were, uh, when we were learning to do fundraising and when we were raising funds and, de- and developing those kinds of relationships, we always talked about and used the language of partnership with people, that people weren't just donors or supporters but partners because that's the reality of what was actually happening. You see, we were partnering together with people from all over the country and all different phases of life and walks of life and all different spaces so that college students might come to know and love and follow and serve Jesus. And it was always so encouraging to get to share with those people about what God was up to and the ways that he was at work amongst students on campus and how God was shaping their lives and changing them. And we would often get messages back from people that they would just say, thanks for letting us be a part of what God is doing on campus. You see, they couldn't be on campus, but we could. And we certainly didn't have the resources to be there, but they did. And so together we partner together so that we might be able to make the good news of the gospel come to life in the lives of students. You see, we were partners together in the midst of that. And this is a side note here, but the reality is, is that your heart is intrinsically connected to your wallet. I don't know why that is, but it just is. It's a timeless truth and reality that our hearts are always connected with where we spend our money. And one of the natural results of investing your money in gospel partnerships is that your heart for God and his kingdom tends to grow. Just the way that it works. And so I just want to encourage you, if if you're in a spot where you're like, I I want for my love for God and my love for others, I I want my, my heart for his kingdom to grow. I just encourage you, one of the best ways to do that is start finding some ways to financially give to the things that God is up to, whether that's in your church or whether that's in missions overseas or wherever it might be. You know, uh, It's good to give your time and your talent, those are things that are important, but I want to encourage you, give your treasure as well and see how God might shape your attitudes and shape your perspectives and might cause you to love him and his kingdom more as you do that. But just like in university and, and just like uh, here at River City as we began our church in that kind of a way, uh, Paul's partnership in the gospel with the Philippians, it wasn't just a financial thing. It wasn't just a financial thing. It was a relational thing as well. You see, Paul deeply cared about this community of believers. You see that language throughout the passage, throughout the letter, you're gonna see it more. He, he talks about how he has them in his heart. He talks about in, in uh, I think, verse eight about how he longs for them with the affections of Jesus. Paul writes a lot of encouraging things to a lot of different churches, but he doesn't talk about any other ones like this. He has this deep relational connection with them it's not just a financial arrangement where they're trying to accomplish a goal together, but he has a deep love for them, and they have some for him as well. The, the, the same is true, and they're often praying for each other, and Paul begins the letter that way. In fact, when, when this church hears about that Paul's in prison, they send one of their best leaders to go and check on him and see what he needs. It's, it's not just like somebody sending a check and then seeing what happens, but they care for one another. And it's the, the gospel and the advancing of God's kingdom that's the thing that binds them together and the thing that's the foundation of this incredibly rich friendship and relationship and partnership together. And what you see as well is that that this financial and relational partnership in the gospel, it wasn't a recent development. It wasn't just like a a new thing that happened. You see, at the end of verse 5, you see, it's been that way since the very first day that Paul met them, and it's continued on ever since. If you want to read about the founding of the church in Philippi, you can read Acts chapter 16, where you see the story of, of how that came about and what happened there. But one of the very first things that you see happening in that church is that in Acts 16 is that Paul they're, they're looking for people who might be seeking God and, and what they find is this woman named Lydia she's a wealthy and, and successful business woman who is kind of like a fashionista of her day and, and she had uh, what you learn about her from her inferences about her name and about a number of other things that we see about her is that she was kind of an international uh, influencer when it comes to fashion and when it comes to business and some of those kinds of things and what you see is that is that God opens her heart to receive the gospel and to believe the truths and the very first thing, no sooner does she become a Christian than she's inviting Paul and Timothy and the rest of them into her home to kind of use her home as like a base of operations for preaching the gospel to their city and reaching and ministering. And, and you see throughout scriptures that she uses her resources to fund those kinds of things and to be a part of the kingdom's advancing. And it happens from the very first day she becomes a Christian. And so it's easy to see why this church was such an encouragement to Paul. It's easy to see why they were such an encouragement. I just want to say this. as, As I studied this week and thought about this letter and what it might have to say for us, one of the things that just stuck out to me is how encouraged I was by you. You know, this church has been such an encouragement to Aaron and I, and especially over the last few years, which have been often challenging in all kinds of ways. This church has been such an encouragement and a blessing, and I see so much of the ways that you are all growing in your faith. I see a humility amongst you. I see an intentionality as you seek to be a part of what God's doing in your lives and in your community. I see you guys giving generously. I see you being a part of what God's up to and longing to keep doing that, and and in so many ways, I was just like encouraged by thinking about you all as I read about Paul's encouragement about this church in Philippians. But the reality is is that even though Paul is really thankful and encouraged by all the ways that God's worked in these people and how he's continuing to use them, what he knows is that God's not done with them. He's not done transforming their hearts and their lives. They still have areas in their lives and in their community where the gospel needs to keep shaping them, keep renewing them, keep transforming them. And so instead of just patting them on the back and telling them great job, he absolutely does that, but he urges them to keep pressing in to the gospel, to keep pressing into the person and the work of Jesus, to keep pressing into the the often difficult work, of continuing to grow up in their faith. Like I said in the introduction, the three main ways that Paul kind of exhorts them, encourages them, are along the lines of, of unity and humility and joy. There's these three areas he wants them to keep growing in, to keep being characterized by a, a Christ-like humility and unity and joy that comes in, in their faith. And, and what I want to show you is as we kind of look at the end of this little section and Paul's prayer for them as he opens this letter to them is that, is that he sees that the thing that ties all of that stuff together, the thing that ties unity and humility and joy, the, the undercurrent, the thread that connects all of that stuff is love. Paul prays for them in verse 9. He he prays that their love might abound more and more. He's he's not saying he has an end goal in mind. He's saying, I want your love to be on a trajectory where it keeps increasing more and more ongoingly. I want this to be headed in an ongoingly growing direction. He says, I want your love to abound more and more, he says, in knowledge and depth of insight so that you might be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, wow, that sounds really great. That is beautiful. Like, that's this this cool picture. And also, I think, what the heck does that mean? Right? I was studying this passage in my office this week and Emma, a lot of times when she gets home from school, she loves to just come down and find me and tell me about her day and what's going on and she hops onto my lap. I have this passage out in front of me. I'm just drawing on and writing, trying to study it and understand it and, and she starts reading. She gets to verse nine and notices I have a big question mark next to next to what's going on there and she's like, that is a good question. What does, what does that mean? How does love grow in knowledge? And I was like... Girl, that is a good question, right? I'm glad we're on the same page about that, right? And the reality is that there's, there's a couple of layers to, to the answer to that question about about what does it mean for our love to abound in knowledge and insight, and and also how does that help us to discern what's best and to be pure and blameless? And I think the answer to that question begins by understanding that word love a little bit better. You see... In English, we just have one word for love. We talk about how we feel about pizza and our spouses with the same, the same word, right? And uh, we don't mean the same thing, at least I don't, right? I mean, some of you might really love pizza or not really be that psyched about your spouse. I'm not sure, right? But but usually we don't mean the same thing when we when we talk about that. But but in Greek, which is the language that most of the New Testament was originally written in, there's a bunch of different words for love, a lot more precise words that describe it more specifically, what it's talking about, and And the word that Paul uses here for love is is the Greek word agape. And that is the the highest, purest form of love in in that whole language. It refers to a a love that is characterized by devotion and sacrifice and selfless service of others. It's It's a love that's not based on reciprocity and not based on getting something in return, but it's a love that's based on the intrinsic value of another. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes to the Corinthians who are not characterized by that kind of a love at all. And he writes to them, giving us this incredible picture about what that kind of love looks like. He says there that that this kind of a love is characterized by, he says, this kind of a love is patient. Literally, it puts up with a lot of stuff. That it's kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects and always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. That kind of a love, it doesn't fail. You see, and so what, what Paul is praying for this church is not just that their affections for God might grow, not, not just that their feelings of love for him or appreciation for him would grow, but that their selfless and sacrificial devotion to God and to others would grow. That, that they would be ever increasingly characterized by lives that embody that kind of a selfless and sacrificial devotion to God and others. And The reality is, is that the only way you become characterized by that kind of a love it's so when you know where it comes from. You have to experience it to know where it comes from. And that brings us to kind of the next layer of the onion of answering that question about what it means for our love to abound in knowledge and insight. You see, you see, throughout the New Testament, that word for knowledge, it's used almost exclusively in reference to knowledge about God. And not just like an informational kind of factual knowledge about him, but a relational kind of knowledge of him. It's a knowing him having a real relationship with him the reality is is that if we want to grow in agape kind of love and a selfless kind of love then we've got to keep growing in our knowledge of who god is and our knowledge of his love for us you see because god not only tells us what it means to love he's not the one who he's he not just he not only defines what love really is he demonstrates it for us, and it's only in knowing him that we actually know what that kind of a love looks like and what it looks like to live that kind of a way. You see, oftentimes I think people with really good intentions, they, 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 they say things like, you know what, I just, I don't really, theology, it's not for me, I, I, don't, I don't really care too much about it, I, I just, all I'm about, I just want to love God and love others, and again they're not trying to be prideful or dismissive or like just like oh who cares nothing matters like that's not that's not what it is but but the reality is is that you can't actually love God and love others unless you know him cuz God's the one who tells you what it means to love him and he's the one who defines what it looks like to love others and if you want to love him and love others you have to know him and what he how he says and what it means to actually do that He's the one who defines it, so you got to know him to be able to do it. It's like my wife. My my wife's love language is acts of service. She likes flowers and and encouraging words as much as anybody else, right? But but the thing that she really feels loved by is acts of service. It's it's when I take the kids and give her some space, or finally finish a project she's been asking me to do for a while, or or when I uh, make when I just like uh, when I'm able to to help work on things that she's been wanting to see happen. And the reality is is that if I, that's not my love language, right? For me, it's like encouraging words. That's one of the things that fills up my heart the most. And and if I try to love her the way that I decide she wants to be loved, that's not going to work great, right? It's not going to work great. And it's, it's the same it is with God. You see, we can't grow in a love for him and a love like his unless we know him unless we let him be the one who defines what love really looks like and what it means to do it. And so as we grow in our knowledge of him, what will happen is we'll be growing in that kind of love, but, but also we'll be growing in our understanding, which that's what that depth of insight is about. That we we'll are growing in our understanding of what it means to actually love like he loves, in the ways that he's calling us to actually do it. You see, the, the, God's love for us in Christ is this endlessly deep well. And until you kick the bucket or Jesus comes back and brings everything to consummation, there are going to be all kinds of ways in which His love for you needs to keep shaping your love for Him and the way you love others. That will there will there will be an endless amount of ways that that needs to keep shaping and transforming your relationship with Him and your relationship with others. And what Paul says is, I want you to keep growing, not just in your knowledge of what God's love looks like and what it means to love. He says, but I want you to be, keep growing in your understanding of what it looks like to live that out, to apply it to your lives and to your relationships each and every day. You see, and one commentator sums it up this way. He says, he says agape love needs more than blind enthusiasm. It needs to be guided by knowledge and depth of insight. It needs divine illumination in order to know what to love and discernment to know how to love. This love is modeled on the love of Christ, and it's learned from the scriptures as we apply it to our lives. So Paul is not just saying, I want you to know more things about God. But he's talking about, I want you to know him and be transformed by him and to see how his love for you keeps shaping your love for others. That's his prayer for them. That they would not just know God's love for them, but that they would know how his love transforms the way they relate to him and the way that they relate to others. What Paul says is that the the result of growing in that kind of a love, in verse 10 and 11, he says is that they'll be able to discern what is best. And they might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Filled with it. See, Paul says, he said, when you grow in that kind of a love, not just a knowledge of it, but knowledge of God that leads you to applying it into your lives, he says what happens is you're not just going to know what is right and true and good. You're not just going to know about what God wants you to do. You will, but you'll also be able to do it, to be characterized by it, to be characterized by a love for God and a love for others that's pure and blameless. One that's filled with the fruit of righteousness. You see, when you look at the fruit of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians chapter 5, what you see is that love's the very first thing on the list. And it's not just because it alphabetically fits there, right? Or because it's inspirational. The reality is that love is the thing that binds all the other ones together. A selfless devotion to God and to others. That's the thing that enables humi- unity. That's the thing that enables humility. That's the thing that fuels joy. You see, what happens is that Paul's going to spend the rest of this letter urging the Philippians to be increasingly characterized by those things. But the only way that that's going to be possible is if they're first increasingly characterized By love for God and love for others. That's the thing. That's the only way it's going to happen. I don't know about you, but when I think about that prayer, right, that, that we'd be ever increasingly growing in a selfless, sacrificial devotion to God and others... That feels a bit daunting to me. I don't know about you. Like, that feels costly. Like, it feels like that's probably gonna cost something, you know? Like, that's probably not gonna be the easiest thing in the whole world, right? And it's easy for me to feel like, ah, I don't know if that's really gonna happen in me. That's why it's so important that what you see is that Paul's prayer for these Christians, that, and for us as well, I think, that, that they grow up in that kind of a love. It's so important you see this. It's not just a, a hope he has. It's not just like a wish, like, ah, oh, it'd be so great if by chance this happened for you guys. No, it is a, it's a request that he is confident that God's going to answer. You see, in the confidence that he has that God's going to keep transforming these Christians and isn't based on their own abilities or their past achievements, right? He's not just like, well, you guys started out great, so I guess there's a shot. We'll see what happens. No, he says that his confidence, verse 6, is rooted in the reality that God is always faithful to finish what he starts. He's always faithful to it. The good news of the gospel isn't just that God saves us from the penalty of sin, but that God ongoingly, each and every day, is saving us from the power of sin in our lives. And that one day, when Jesus comes back, that's the day that Paul's talking about when he refers to the day of Christ, that one day when Jesus comes back, God's going to save us altogether from the presence of sin once and for all, and we'll be with him. And the confidence that we can have that all of those things will happen, not just a hope that they might, but the confidence that they will, is because it's all rooted in the finished work of Jesus. It's all rooted in him. And the fact that God's the one that does the saving and he's the one that does the transforming. One commentator puts it this way. He, said that, he says, the, the perseverance of the saints rests on the perseverance of God with the saints. I hope that that's good news to you. I hope that that's good news for your heart this morning because the reality is that growing in your faith, that's hard. It's hard. And it is rarely linear. It is often up and down in spurts and fits and it is rarely this just clean shot that we'd love it to be. Oftentimes I think what happens when we look at our own growth is like we, we're kind of looking at it like it's the day view of a stock chart. And it feels like there's all these ups and downs. And it feels like there's all this tumult and tumultuousness. And like, I wish I could just be making some progress here, right? What happens is is when you zoom out, what you see on the stock chart is that those little blips that felt really big, they were little. And over time, you have this increasingly, this trajectory of growth. You see, and I think what happens is that it's just so encouraging for us to think about our walks with Jesus in that kind of a lens. To zoom out a little bit, to ask God to give you some perspective, to help you see what he has done in you and what he's doing in you, and to realize that in the midst of all of that, that God's not finished with you. He's not done with you. And you can trust that he will keep working in you, that he's going to keep doing it. And it's not that we just sit back and kind of let God do all the work and we just kind of have like a Tesla autopilot view of our spiritual growth where we just kind of like, I'll put my hand on the wheel once every couple of miles, right? Like that's that's not what's going on here. That's not the way the Bible describes our our spiritual growth. But the reality is, is that when we trust that God is the one who's actually doing the growth in us, it enables us not to take our hands off the wheel, but to press in to the work that he's doing in us. And asking him, saying, God, I long to look more and more like Jesus. And I need you to be the one that's doing it in me. Because only you can do the changing in me. And so to press into that. And the reason why, again, we can be so confident that that God is going to be continuing to transform us because both our salvation and our sanctification, both, both God saving us and His the way he grows us up, that those things are rooted in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. That's where they're founded. And that's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. We're reminding ourselves about the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, about his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. That's the thing that secures our status and our standing with God. It's the thing that which we cling to, not just to be saved and have some right standing with him, but also to, to that one day to, that he's going to save us all in the end, to be with him forever. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Faith alone in the person and the work of Jesus does that. But communion is a chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves that it's not our effort on which everything rides, but it's on the finished work of Jesus. And then again, that doesn't doesn't lead us to lives of complacency. It doesn't lead us to lives where we just don't care and we just coast. In fact, the reality of that actually leads us to giving ourselves endlessly to God's transforming work in us because we know that we could never do it without him and that he's doing it in us in spite of ourselves. And there's life there that you can't find anywhere else. And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, then during our time of worship, I'd encourage you, go back and take communion. Do it as a way to remember all that Jesus has done for you and the security and confidence you have because of his finished work. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and if that's something you want in your life, then I just want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion. You are welcome here and in this community, and your questions are welcome here, and your process is welcome here. But God's not after religious rituals, and he's not after just going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts in and rests in him. That's confidence comes from a hope in his work on your behalf, not your work to get to him. So as we close this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and maybe what you're realizing is that in your faith, you've just been coasting for a while. You've just kind of been okay with the status quo and what you're realizing is that God's calling you to keep pressing in to following him to keep asking him where the gospel needs to shape your heart and your life and your attitudes and your perspectives I want to encourage you this morning talk with God as we sing and pray ask him as we study the book of Philippians that he by his spirit might give you insight into where it is that he's wanting to challenge you where it is that the gospel needs to keep shaping your attitudes and actions and perspectives. Ask him to give you eyes to see what it is that he wants to keep doing in you. And Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're, you're, you're really trying to grow and you long for that, but maybe what you're realizing is that is that your love for God and your love for others, one of the things that's limiting that is that you just don't really know that much about him. And I want to encourage you that you you need to be intentional about growing up, not just in an affection for God, but in a knowledge of him and his word that leads you to be able to actually love him and love others as he he sees fit. Aaron and I and your small group leaders, we would love to be able to help you with that and to connect you with resources and tools to help you keep growing. But wherever you're at, I just want to encourage you with this just to begin by rejecting the attitude that thinking deeply about God and his word is not for you. That, that for, some, for whatever reason, that's beyond you or that you don't have the capacity for it. Church, if you've trusted Jesus to be your savior, then you have the spirit of God living within you. He's the one who wrote it in the first place. And so you have everything you need to think rightly and deeply about his word. <laughs> And you have a community of people that will help you to do that. But I want to encourage you, reject the idea that thinking deeply about God and his word is not something that's for you, that it's just for pastors or just for leaders or just for other people. No, it's for all of us. All of us are called to be students of God and his word that never graduate. That's a place where we're all called to be and it's a place of life. Lastly, some of you are here this morning and maybe what you feel is that you're stuck in your spiritual growth. You feel like you've been keep just running into the same walls over and over again. It feels like when you zoom out, you just keep not mainly making any progress in your walk with Jesus. And I want to encourage you, for some of you, the problem might be not that you're not trying hard enough, but that you're relying on yourself to do it. See, we see throughout the letter that Paul writes to this church is that the person and the work of Jesus is the thing that brings about all the transformation in people's lives. In our 11 verses, he's mentioned in more than half of them. He's central to everything. What happens so often is we believe the lie that the way you grow up is just by trying really hard. But the truth that we see in Scripture is that the way you actually grow in your faith is not just by trying really hard. It's not that it doesn't involve effort, but that's not the key the key of the way that we transform the way that God transforms us is when what happens is when we're transformed in our hearts when the things that you love start to change when in your love for God is the thing that refuels a love for him and a life lived unto him so I want to encourage you some of you this morning ask God to keep making Jesus beautiful to you Ask him to keep showing you, not that you're the one that changes you, but as Paul says, that the fruit of righteousness that he wants us to be filled with, that it comes through Jesus. So maybe you need to stop relying on yourself as much. Start putting your trust in him to be the one that changes you, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. My hope as we study this letter together as a church is that all of us would keep growing up in our faith. Wherever you're at, And that, like Paul prays for this church, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that we would know God's love for us by knowing him, and that we would grow in our ability to apply it to our lives, so that ever increasingly, we'd be a church that's characterized by unity and humility and joy. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word and our time together in it. We are so grateful for it. I thank you that this letter to a church that's 2,000 years old is anything but irrelevant and outdated. God, it speaks to our own hearts and lives and there is so much in here that we need just as much as these Christians did. And so God, we ask by your grace that you might empower us to be a people that grows in love for you, a selfless, sacrificial devotion to you and to others as a result of knowing you more and allowing the truths of the gospel to shape what it looks like for us to apply that to our lives. God, we want to be a people that looks like that so that increasingly unity and humility and joy will characterize us as a church. And ultimately, that's all about being filled with the fruit of righteousness, God, that brings you glory. Help us to do that, God. We can't do it on our own. We ask that you would for our good and for your glory, we pray, amen.